Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Saller. For those of you who are new, I run a podcast called the Mere Catholicity Podcast, like I just said, and one of the ways that you can actively become a part of the Mere Catholicity community is by clicking the link below and becoming a local supporter. You can join for free or you can subscribe for whatever you feel comfortable giving to support the work that I do. Either way, you're joining a community of like-minded Christian brothers and sisters that are all seeking to grow into a deeper Catholicity together. So if that's of interest to you, please click the link below and become a mere Catholic today. Without further ado, I would like to introduce my guest today. I have the pleasure of talking to Benjamin Wilson. Uh, Benjamin, thank you very much for coming on the show and talking. The subject matter today is going to have a lot to do with art and specifically sacred art and its role, not just in the Christian tradition, but also in Protestant tradition specifically, a place where maybe there has been a more recent neglect of the sacred art. Um, and so I look forward to diving into this subject with him, talking to him about it. But before we do that, Benjamin, if you wouldn't mind just giving a brief introduction uh, to my uh, supporters so that they know who you are. All right. Well, thank you for having me. This is pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I'm i an artist. I don't work in as an artist full-time yet, and mostly just for reasons of I can't make that jump yet financially, and it's probably just not the time to do it yet. And uh, part of that is because I'm newly married, not even a year, only about like seven, eight months since October. So, um, so we're just kind of settling in right now. And, uh, yeah, I have, a my, uh, my wife's name is Madison and, uh, we met at college, the same college I got my, uh, fine art degree at. And so in my downtime, I, it's kind of hard when you want your hobby and to be your uh, career as well. So I do a lot of art in my downtime as well. And I also kind of consider myself an amateur theologian of art, philosopher of art, and I do a little writing on things of that nature here and there on a substack. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. For, for those who are interested, uh, your, your website is uh, the art. Sis, which is kind of a play on Theosis, uh, Theartsis Studios. Um, I'll put yeah. a link down below to that, but then you also have a substack that's uh, reformedaesthetics.substack.com, which will also be in the link below for people who want to check it out. Um, so yeah, let, let's let's dive into this subject and I'll, I'll just start by asking like what what was your what's your background and your interest in art? What what caused you to really discover a love for art that made you want to pursue it? So I had to think, I gave a presentation on this a few months ago and I had to, it was like the first time I had to really think about why I got into art. And I finally remembered that I didn't really get into art for any, you know, complete love of art really. Um, that came afterwards but what i remember is seeing my older brother drawing 
things very pretty, you know, pretty well and not perfect. I forget how old we were, but, and I just remember thinking, you know, I'm going to be better at that than he is. And so I just kind of, I think I just started trying and trying really hard and then eventually just continued to really enjoy trying and eventually, you know, forgot about trying to beat anyone and just enjoyed the art itself. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very cool. Maybe too, if you could just kind of give a, a brief background on like your, your theological journey, where, where you started, where you are now, so that we can kind of figure out how to tie those, those two things together. Ooh. Oh yeah. Oh man. That kind of gets into, you know, how I found sacred art and yeah. all that. Uh, I grew up um, in sort of reformed Baptist settings and then for various reasons, a lot of people left that church, reasons I'm not entirely aware of yet. Um, I'm still friends with the uh, son of the pastor, that church, so I don't really bring that up. Um, but yeah, we, we ended up, my family ended up at a uh, PCA church, so Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterian. Um, and... It, I, it's that's what I've called my home um, for a good long while. I've never been Presbyterian. It's a lot of it, especially just um, I was always kind of had that like, covenantal Baptist uh, identity. And I think a lot of the time I was at Presbyterian church was just I saw the Presbyterian form of government as probably the best of all the options, not necessarily like it was divinely mandated or inspired. Um, but my, my belief on that changed after I attended one Orthodox service, um, during, during college, my roommates and I would very often attend, uh, in the Orthodox church in a town nearby and my first experience of orthodoxy was a paschal service so about four hours of just standing and um but it was one of the bishop services where i saw the bishop standing there with surrounded by like all the presbyters and it sort of gave me that mental image of like, oh all the bishops are you know successors of peter this is a, like most direct image of Peter surrounded by the apostles worshiping Christ. And you didn't get that very often in the Presbyterian government because it, they kind of alternated who was leading the service. Sure. And you really don't get that in like congregational uh, governance at all. But so, yeah, I was, I had a very, I have a very soft spot for Eastern Orthodoxy, um, but I think right right now I just I really enjoy like Anglicanism, mostly because they have that broad allowance for you can be Anglo-Catholic, you can be Anglo Anglican Reformed, Anglican Pentecostal. Um, I feel like they have a very good mentality when it comes to church church authority and tradition. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'd agree. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. 
that's pretty much where I am. Um, and it's partially, partially also, um, it's the, that's the, the, um, church tradition I can see myself most serving in. Um, Mm. I've always wanted to be in some sort of church leadership. Um, but I never wanted to be like full-time pastor. I never wanted to do 45 minute sermons. Um, my wife says I'd be pretty good with like supporting role in church leadership. So I think that's sort of just where I would feel very comfortable, I think. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's cool. And, and your your experience of uh, entering into this world of orthodoxy a bit uh, when you're visiting these churches um, that was that was my introduction. My first introduction to liturgy was an Orthodox divine liturgy as well. And mm-hmm. um, what was very striking about my experience was the moment you walk in, first you're hit with the smell of incense everywhere. Oh, yeah. um, but then the second thing, obviously, that you notice is the fact that almost every inch of the church is covered in sacred art. Um, yeah, icons nearly everywhere. And this is something that even in a Catholic church, cause I'd been to some Catholic masses before I hadn't experienced on quite the level I did with orthodoxy. Um, and it really kind of drew my mind into the reality that the Christian tradition has a very, uh, deep tie to the idea of experiential participatory kind of worship. Um, and so that was kind of what I gleaned from sacred art is like, this is trying to tell me something theologically about what's actually experientially happening right now. Um, and so I, I imagine it was, it was similar to you. And so like, was, was your going to an Orthodox divine liturgy kind of what sparked your interest in, in sacred art or was there something else or was it a combination? What, what moved you from just an interest in art to particularly an interest in, in sacred art? Um, I think my, my interest in orthodoxy came first and it was an interest I had kind of like long before I even attended, uh, divine liturgy because I never got up, you know, never really got up the courage to go to one by myself. Um, it took, uh, my roommates kind of like were, my roommates were all we're generally interested in orthodoxy as well. And they're like, we're going, you want to come. So, but yeah, my interest in orthodoxy started that like that didn't even start with art. It started because, um, I read or listened to a podcast where the author was saying that the Orthodox church is the only church that doesn't have a male attendance problem. Hmm. Um, and I think he gave various reasons, but then that just got me interested in well, what what they even believe. You know, are they they're they're probably not just Catholics over that way, right? Um, because they're obviously separated for some reason. So that came first, and then um, I don't really even remember why enjoyed sacred art i just kind of accepted that was okay and i did the first um icon i ever did was 
like probably about the size of the average phone. If you have one of the uh, newer um, iPhones, mm-hmm. and it was of a very nondescript saint. He had like pure white hair and no hands because hands are impossible to paint or draw <laughs> in any medium. So, and I probably just for wording uh, for his name, I probably just put Saint. Uh, I think one of my roommates took it or bought it off me. But then my first commission was for a Sacred Heart icon. Okay. And that went okay. But like my first, because that was also just one of my roommates. My first big kind of commission was the the, um, priest of St. Vladimir's Church commissioned me to do a uh, icon of St. Vladimir for his, I think his personal use. I think, I don't remember seeing it in the church anywhere, but so that was very interesting to try and do because I've used egg tempera and it took so long to get so little detail that I couldn't imagine what it takes to get a full beautiful icon, even though I mm. kind of do them more now as I use acrylic. Okay. So yeah, that that's, there was no big realization of, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Cause I, it's just sort of part of what I do now. Sure. Um, but it was very comforting, I guess, to know that Christians have come before me and have made art and they mm-hmm. weren't i didn't have to just reject it because it's catholic right yeah yeah that's that's good and that that kind of leads into the next question which is um you know based based on what you said you're you're protestant i'm protestant we're both not roman catholic we're eastern orthodox but we appreciate a lot about both of these traditions and we both recognize the fact that those traditions are part of our heritage as well. It's not as though we're a brand new church that is totally distinct. We ha- There's a continuity. And so therefore, the things that they teach, the things that they have, where it is good and right and true, we should be drawing from that. We should be appropriating that within our own Protestantism. We, I think, can both agree that Protestantism has not been the most vocal in terms of support of sacred art. Um, if anything, Protestantism has been known for its iconoclasm, uh, throughout history. Um, and that's not to say that's been characteristic of every era of Protestantism Mm -hmm. everywhere, but it is to say that most people, when they think of iconoclasm, they don't think of Rome in the East. They think of Protestantism. So as a Protestant who is interested in sacred art, who actually partakes in creating and, and learning how to deepen the creation of, of sacred art. Um, why, why should Protestantism embrace sacred art? Um, why should Protestantism recognize this as a important part of, of the life of the church? Yeah. Um, so I've sort of come to see this as there, like there is a revival happening today of sacred art. I kind of see two strands of it happening and I don't really want to make this broad division, but it's sort of kind of between the Catholic and Orthodox mentality or 
maybe just more of a kind of grandeur versus participative participative yeah um i think that that's probably a better one but i've seen more catholics lean to the grandeur you know re reintroduce the baroque type art um and that's that's the direction i think is wrong um kind of their interest in reviving roman catholic culture uh, and bring back beautiful church buildings which is not wrong but like it's only going to be every couple of dozen years that new you know was that church of the immaculata was is built and consecrated because it's just not how our economy works um so i just don't think that's the way protestants are meant to go um and i think it's also because the protestants are already concerned with the idea of like proper worship um and Catholicism is what we came out of. So trying to get them to come back together is going to be a lot harder than a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's also problematic because I see that as a step back in the direction that got us here in the first place. Um, so it's sort of that same, it's sort of that idea of like the atheist and the Christian having dialogue, but they set, they have the same like mindset. They're both kind of basically materialists and one just has a superimposed being over the world. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So if you like want to go back to that form of art, um, I think it was Michael Horton in his book on like, the history of justification. And he shows that the Catholics were very much also participating in the um, appropriation of nominalist um, philosophy. Yeah. And so, and a lot of Protestants just straight out rejected nominalism. Uh, I think Protestants invented or did things that got us to this place in a different way but right and uh if you just look i've seen actually numerous art historians as well saying that the baroque which comes out of like the council of trent which is sort of kind of like the ideal of sacred art for a lot of traditional catholics the baroque because of their dogma of transubstantiation secularized the transcendental. I think mm. that's the wording of Walter Friedlander. Mm. There's other, I forget where I read that though, but I have it quoted. Um, and so I think other art historians like Arnold Hauser and Willie Seifer um, said basically the same thing uh and it's kind of it's not hard to understand especially for the mind that already has doubts the priest is saying that bread up there is not actually bread it's christ's body you know substantially but your eyes are seeing bread you know someone who already doubts who already has some sort of grudge against the church is just you know, you're lying to me yeah um so 
Yeah, I find. Go ahead. Finish. Yeah. Go ahead. Finish. I just yeah. I find sort of the idea of going back to a place that just ends up back to where we are is kind of just a step backwards. And yeah. Um. Yeah, and there's other art historians as well who said like the um, Baroque have moved the idea of um, being into the world of becoming. And so you've got uh, Rubens, I think, hmm. where his art is very fleshy and very animated. And so it's kind of, it's interesting at least to say, hey, there is no transcendental if it's, you know, just physical. Um, I'm right. probably butchering that, but um, yeah, the, the, I, I think I, I think I get where I've, you're. I think I get where you're where you're coming from, though. It does seem that there is like a there was a distinct move in the late Middle Ages in Roman Catholicism to a much more nominal, rationalistic way of approaching and doing theology that really undermined the, perhaps maybe the word would be the participatory sacramental kind of worldview that would be associated with a more um, historical patristic tradition in the church. And because there was a move in that direction, not only was there a greater divide placed between uh, the supernatural and the natural, but there was also a move away from these kind of universals that are that are used in in not just discussion, but in the way that we actually do theology, the way we appropriate it, the way we conceive of it. And you do see that in something like transubstantiation, which, um, you know, as I see it, in some senses is basically suggesting that in order for Christ to be fully present somewhere, that thing that he's present in cannot coexist with him. And in other words, something has to diminish for Christ to be more. The natural has to be diminished in order for the supernatural to be present. Whereas I would say a more patristic view of that would say, you know, it's actually that the bread and wine, it's not that they cease to be, but it's that the bread and wine become more of what they're supposed to be. They become, mm -hmm. they become elevated. They're, they're, the nature becomes elevated and lifted and exalted into a participation in Christ. And if you just take that kind of idea of either a descent and containment versus an elevation and participation, and you apply that to art in general, it makes a huge difference in the way in which art is approached, the way art is done, the way art is conceived. Um, and I think that plays out in the Roman Catholic tradition in the late Middle Ages and kind of the movement away from what the Eastern Orthodox and I would say historically how Christian art looked. Um, and Protestants, I think in some sense, rightly rejected a lot of what Rome was doing on a, on an, on a, uh, an artistic scale because they saw the kind of embedded philosophy that was, that was attached to that. And so, yeah, I agree. Going back to that mm -hmm. is not, is not the answer. Um, would you say then that, that like well, yeah. orthodoxy, you, go, go ahead. You can pick up where I, where I just stopped. Well, I was just, um, I want to be fair as well to the Catholic tradition, like the Roman Catholic tradition and be like, 
transubstantiation is incredibly easy to just misunderstand. Because um, yeah. like yeah. even even Aquinas was saying the bread, the substance of the bread is not annihilated. It's transformed Correct. like it, which is a bit more like, you know, the bread is taken up into participating with Christ. Right. Um, but that that's so hard to do in art. And it's so hard to explain fully. Because, I, I mean, I think if you ask average person what transubstantiation is, they believe that the bread is annihilated and... Right. Yeah, the, yeah. They would take a the nominal approach to, yeah. Yeah. So in kind of just in general, because of human nature as well, we want to not see truth or, or whatnot. Um, for the Catholics, there's this kind of collapse of the transcendental into the physical. And for the Protestants, there's a lot of separation um, cause I, I think the reformed, uh, are basically the face of the reformation now. And yeah, I'd, I'd agree. they have, yeah. And they have their, um, you know, spiritual presence, which is a bit more, bit more Zwinglian. So, so like we're, we're both really, um, at fault for the basically the invention of the modern world um, because we couldn't we we couldn't hold the secular and the transcendental together without collapsing one or the other or severing them. Mm. Yeah. So, do you think that um, the the Orthodox have a good answer to this that the West just hasn't been able to? to achieve in, in their theology and, and in their approach to things. I do appreciate that they don't in general try and define what happens in the sacrament. Uh, I think their general approach to the, is sort of the, the next stream of the artistic, the sacred art revival is the participatory uh, side because Protestants have been very disconnected from the Christian story overall, and they've made it into the uh, kind of the story of doctrine, basically. Um, and I think when you make it into the story of doctrine, you get kind of these uh, like fads of interpretation. Um, yeah. So we got the materialist interpretation, kind of fundamentalist interpretation, the Michael Heiser is cool interpretation, that I want to be a messianic Jew. Um, so it, Protestantism is a lot of just like fads sometimes of what it means to be a Christian. And they've lost just the general participatory uh, engagement in the Christian story. Um, I think the problem is, I think the Reformed, they have this covenantal framework, which could very easily, if you just want to like re-look at it, retweak some things and consider price more, like you might 
be able to fit in um, that participatory aspect. Yeah. Uh, but they kind of just don't. Uh, so I think. Really quick, not, not to cut to, you off, not to cut you off, but yeah. I, I think post enlightenment, you see this a lot more because if you, if you read Calvin and for example, there does seem to be some reference to participation, like his, his emphasis on union mm-hmm. with Christ, for example, things like that. Even Luther, there's been arguments like, uh, uh Dr. Jordan Cooper, he wrote a book, uh, called Union with Christ, where he argues for basically the the idea of participation. So I don't think the concept as a whole was lost from the reformers, but I think as history progressed and and kind of rationalism kind of took over a lot of the theolo- the way theology was done, and we moved away from a sacramental worldview and a sacramental reading of scripture more towards like a historical grammatical reading of scripture. Mm-hmm that kind of thing was kind of torn and severed. And I think you see that more so today, but, um, and I, I'm not trying to insinuate you weren't being fair, but I do just want to point out, I think that the reformers were conscious of participation in a way that maybe their predecessors, um, and, uh, moving forward, people were, were not as, as aware of. No, that's a fair point. I actually forgot about that, even though I definitely learned uh, learned that. Um, yeah, it's fascinating how much of outside the church thinking just gets into the church and we bow to it and try and make sure we fit in with the uh, Enlightenment model or somehow or whatever. We just forget what the Bible says. We forget what our tradition says. And yeah. That's very true. Um, but I think at least the um, the story, the myth of the Reformation itself is wearing off mm. uh, because they, that's what a lot of Reformed people grew up with. The sort of Rome was corrupt. Luther had this, you know, revelation Reformation happened, and if you're in the Reformed tradition, John Calvin comes along, synthesizes it the best, and here we are with the Reformed Church. So that's, you know, pretty straightforward, uh, pretty enticing as well. So I just think that's wearing off because so many people are reading uh uh primary material they're reading the tradition itself and they're kind of coming realization that uh reformation was okay even if you believe they got some of their doctrine right you're kind of left with the whole aspect of uh they kind of did invent a new form of politics that is not very not been very good and so, and also the whole reformed movement with like the young, restless, and reformed reached a peak. And so the pendulum's kind of swinging back. So people are now leaving 
the reformed tradition for something maybe more rooted, maybe a bit more uh, embodied or something. So. Yeah. So do you, do you think that um, like the resistance to sacred art within the Protestant tradition has a lot to do with the late mid- medieval Catholic church? Um, or do you think that it's it's rooted in something completely different? Because sometimes I'll hear Protestants that will say like the Roman abuses of of the way in which sacred art was used or the way it was appropriated or the theology behind it, et cetera, are the reason we're opposed. But then I'll hear others that will say like exegetically scripture itself is opposed to sacred art. Um, and so like what what do you think has been historically the big uh problem that protestants have had with sacred art and in what in what ways are you seeing kind of a revival beginning um so i think for anglicans and lutherans and maybe sort of branches off of anglican the general aversion was probably more towards the abuses that they saw Rome uh, doing and uh, allowing to happen. So I think for that tradition, those traditions, I think that's more the problem. I think for the reform tradition, I think it has to do with their covenantal uh, framework. And I think my my basic idea of for this part was that you know God is God is the initiator of the covenant. He's allowed to set the rules, and he's allowed he's the one who's allowed to you know do that which is generally forbidden. So I think in reformed terms, there is sacred art, but sacred art is when God commands you to make art. So bronze serpent, the uh, cherubim on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, both commanded by God to be made. Therefore, you have no choice. I think reformers say there's no command to make uh, images of Christ. God didn't come to the monks in the desert and say make icons. So from there, you kind of have to make a theological jump and say, Okay, but in the covenant, we're allowed freedom to make images of Christ. And some, like R.C. Sproul, would go that direction. I believe he was okay with images of Christ. Um, The other direction you have to go in order to be allowed to have images of Christ is if Christ himself uh, commanded or mandated that the use of his image be uh, in all churches. So, which is interesting because that's, I, I feel like that's what you see in Catholic settings too, that they need the Shroud of Turin to be true. They need Veronica's veil to be an accurate representation of Jesus as he looked particularly. So I think for Reformed, you're going to have a, big hurdle to say that 
the Shroud of Turin, or Veronica's Veil, is Christ's image. Therefore, because he gave us his image, we are we must venerate it on basically on pain of blasphemy. Hmm. So, but you really can't convince the reformed of that because it's not in the scripture. We just don't know. So, yeah, I think that's where the reformed tradition comes down and say, well, he said not to. We don't have a positive command to do it. We don't have an annulment of the command. We're not going to make yeah. it. So it'd be kind of an outworking of the the regulative principle in, in reformed theology, um, largely. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you think that the reformed should reevaluate this issue and say like, Hey, maybe we're, we're not looking at this correctly. I mean, personally, yes. Uh, I've only just begun to like, entertain the idea that Christ gave us an image of himself because we honestly can't. It's that that's so hard to prove. Yeah, that that's actually a very interesting point. Um, would would you would you argue that? Because I'm not sure. This is just interesting that you're bringing it up. Would you argue that if the Shroud of Turin, for example, is true, that therefore mm-hmm. is a license to depict Christ? Whereas if it's not, if it's proved to be completely faulty, we would therefore have to concede the reformed position. Or would you still argue that even without a true image of Christ, we could still depict him. Yeah. I think if it turns out to be true, I personally don't see a way around saying that we must, you know, at least submit all of our images to this image. Mm. And if, if this is the true image, I don't see a way to say we can't venerate it. Um, if it's not, I'm not sure this, I'm not sure if we can say, or if I would be able to say we, like the reform position is true, therefore we can't, Mm. um, because I think I would fall into the camp of, we have freedom in, within the covenant, um, to make images and, that that runs into the problem of particularity. You know, Jesus was a Jew, not a Western, right? Uh, European. So, I've heard arguments that that doesn't matter. I'm not really sure what to think of those yet. Um, you know, don't take any much of what I say as fact. It's mostly just musings and sure opinions. Yeah, yeah. So, so kind of on on that note, um, what are your what are your thoughts on the Seventh Ecumenical Council? So, obviously, Nicaea II is a hotly debated subject, especially within Protestantism. The East affirms it, the Roman Catholic Church affirms it. Some Anglicans, including myself, would affirm it and say that, at least in its definition, it is Orthodox. But obviously, mm-hmm. this has been a pretty widely rejected council by um, Protestantism, given the fact that the definition makes clear that veneration is not simply an optional thing, but it's a necessary part 
of Christian orthodoxy, the veneration of sacred images. So what, what's your take on the Seventh Ecumenical Council? Uh, what's your take on the Protestant reception of it? Uh, should they receive it? Should they not? Yeah. I think that definitely assuming it is an ecumenical council, Protestants should be a bit more willing to concede and be sort of a bit more, you know, okay, the church as a whole got together. They could be wrong, but the church as a whole, I might just have to say, okay, I accept. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm Protestant, so I'm, you know, scripture says no, you know, uh, but I think at least a starting point for Protestants is to view Nicaea as more of a safety net. Mm. Um, so I think if you look at it, like a lot of the other councils, the Catholic tradition, it's largely trying to find where you can't, can't go um, by making our definitions less clear. So like the best, probably the best example is Christology. It's just, they're always saying, stop trying to explain it, except the right. limited um, portion we've been given. Um, so I don't think Catholicity should be seen as like the mindset of agreeing with all the old Christians without bringing ourselves into that tradition. Um, Cause I think at that point just becomes another type of group think mm. and doesn't allow for the Holy spirit uh, to work today while still under, you know, the confines of orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, we all venerate things. I think that's, we all intuitively know you, you kiss a picture of your mom or your wife, you're kissing your mom or your wife. You know, you're not giving worship to the image. You're right. you know, sending it through. I think we all either Nicaea really influenced us so much that that embedded itself in our conscious consciousness or that's just something we intuitively know. Yeah. Um, so I think because we all venerate things and also because art on the outside of sacred art is not an unliving thing either. Right. It can be kind of, it can sometimes be dangerous to be around other art. Mm. Uh, so one of my experiences in um, art history class was we were look. This is sort of what made me realize that art has sort of its life of its this life of its own. Um, we are the professor pulled up an image of a Kandinsky painting, and she was telling us how he was influenced by music and he wanted to paint sound and everyone started to hear organs play. And in the next room, 
was a music class playing organ on their video screen. So it was like, it's either coincidence, but it's a strange coincidence. Mm. Or, you know, art has this, has its own sort of living quality. Um, yeah. And if you don't want to go all the way there, you can also just say, so there's um, a German artist, Helma of Klimt. She basically invented abstraction, but she invented it by holding seances and painting what the spirits told her to paint. Hmm. So your engagement with those paintings is a second, you know, second step away is a step away from engagement with spirits. And right. if you're not careful, like in general, it's probably not going to do anything to you. You'll probably be fine. But if you're not careful, you don't know. Right. Yeah. So this, this kind of gets think, into the, go ahead, finish, finish what you were saying. Well, I'm just, I think Christians need, some sort of kind of not necessarily official, but some sort of theology of art. That's a bit more than just God gave us creativity. So go create. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just, I was, yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree with that. I, I, I really, really like, uh, probably my favorite living theologian is, is Dr. Hans Borsma or father Hans Borsma as well. Um, and he has a book, I don't know if you've read it called heavenly participation. Have you read that? Interesting. I have not even heard of him. So I would, I would highly recommend you check it out. It's very much in line with what we're talking about. And I think it, it offers a lot of clarity here. And I I think what it boils down to is that kind of idea of art, having a life of its own that you're talking about, maybe a good word for it would be like the world so his kind of thesis in in the book is that the cosmos itself is a sacrament in a real sense because rather than simply being a symbol saying like x points to y but really has no correspondence other than x pointing to y we would say like a sacramental worldview would say that x points to y but it also overlaps with y it participates in y somehow and that's kind Mm -hmm. of this picture of the world right is that art, not just sacred art, but all art, because everything subsists in the being of God, is in some sense a participation in something beyond itself. Um, and so therefore, it isn't just a nominal thing, right? It's not It's not simply that art is a thing on the wall, and that's all that it is. It actually participates in something bigger yeah. and acts as a sacrament, because what art is, all art is supposed to be is a depiction of something that corresponds to some kind of reality, whether, whether that reality is very tangible, like a horse running through a field, whether it's a little bit more abstract, like a unicorn running through a field, it still has some correspondence in reality and therefore in a real sense participates in that reality. Um, And I think this is very much what the church has been trying to get at with sacred art is that sacred art is not simply a painting of Jesus or a painting of a saint. It is an actual 
participation in that very reality that it is depicting. And by our observation our, and our engagement in it, we are entering into or participating in that deeper and greater reality in the same way we do with all art, whether that be music, whether that be painting, we all participate in it and in a sense take on that art as part of who we are. Um, my mom, she's a, she's an artist. My sister's an artist. I'm a musician. And I would say we would all agree that in our various endeavors, our various artistic expressions, we never finish a piece of art without feeling in some sense that a part of us has been attached to that art. But more than that, maybe that that art is therefore mm -hmm. part of us and there's a correspondence and an overlap there. Um, so yeah, I'll kind of end that there, but I, I, I would be curious to know your thoughts on that kind of a outlook of art and, and whether you think I'm, I'm on or off with that. That's yeah. That's what I'm sort of trying to do with both kinds of art. I think sacred art and my lack of a better term, just fine art. Um, and I also think that's sort of where the Seventh Ecumenical Council is sort of a subtle genius um, because it... So the pagan idea of the idol was, you know, the, the idol was part of the body of that god. Right. And I think Nicaea does this interesting um, move to say, well... It's not, I could get this wrong, but it's not actually, you know, their body, but it points to their body. So, but it points in a way that's not just, you know, X points to um, something else. There's the idea of, I think, Owen Barfield, a final participation. Right. Yeah. Where, and it's sort of, similar to orthodox essence and energies yeah, distinction where much. you participate in sort of the reality of god but you don't participate in you don't become god right uh, right so you you're able to have this separation but also co-mingling in a way of the image and the reality but not right. in not in the same way that kind of happened in like the late, late Baroque, where fight where they uh, kind of had these, and you see them in uh, various cultures around the world still. They have statue, you know, kind of statues of the saints decorated very beautifully, and they parade them through the streets. And that's sort of to me that's sort of saying this image is that saint. Right. Whereas I think the icon in iconography is saying this is not that saint, but also is. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I, I think, think that's that's spot on. Yeah. And I think the Orthodox found a way in general around the sort of particularity problem. Um, and this sort of comes from the influence of um, one of my favorite artists, Alexander Stoddard. Um, he's talking about like the image is death and the word is life. Hmm. So the Orthodox were able to abstract 
the person enough. He could still sort of recognize a face, but he's not quite um, identifiable unless you have a name. So what you have is the image of the saint who lived in a body, in a corruptible human body, and the word or his name indicating that he is still alive. Um, so I think that's sort of an interesting way to kind of get past that. Oh, was Jesus, you know, Jesus was a Jew, not a white person. Like, well, he was, you know, the savior of the Chinese, Japanese, Indian, all the way around the world. But if you still have his name, that means he's the living savior. He's not you know, the guy who died. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really good. And I, I think, I think that that, that is a very key part of distinguishing. Um, and really in some sense, I think pushing back on some of the Protestant critiques, which would be, you know, that the veneration of images is an idolatry. The only way in which I could see idolatry taking place with the veneration of images is if a sacramental worldview is lacking. Um, I, 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 mm-hmm. I've always been a, a supporter of the Seventh Ecumenical Council precisely because I don't believe that simply venerating paint and wood means you're an idolater because you're not venerating paint and wood. You're recognizing the participation of what this depicts, specifically with that name, right? Like, yes, that's not a picture of Jesus, but the word says Jesus. Therefore, I recognize that this is a conduit by which I truly participate in and recognize and worship Jesus. Um, In the same way with honoring the saints and stuff. Um, And when, when you think about it, and this has been a big part of this whole discussion of sacred art for me is I'm an embodied being, right? Like I am, I'm both spirit or soul and body, right? Like that, that that's who I am. And so you would not, you can't picture, for example, you said you recently got married. I've been married for almost four years now, but you can't picture loving your wife apart from your wife being an embodied being, right? Like, yeah. how, how would I know who she is? How would I know what she looks like? Like, I know my wife in a crowded room because she's an embodied being just like me. And therefore I know I love that woman and not that woman over there. Um, mm-hmm. Like these are things that we take for granted, but are such fundamental aspects of being embodied creatures. And so when you think about like icons and stuff, it makes sense that we wouldn't strip the church walls down and make them barren because we're embodied beings that must, I think, fundamentally recognize that just as the world is sacramental, time is sacramental. We're, we're in a moment in, in time, but all of, the, all of time, past, present, future, subsists and finds its being in Jesus Christ himself, the eternal word, And so if Jesus is the mark and the anchor for all of reality by which past, present, and future subsist, then we can't say that because I live here and this saint died a hundred years ago, I can't in any sense engage with the saint. 
that's that's not true, fundamentally not true because of the reality of the word of God and all of time subsisting in him. If all things subsist in Christ, that means that in a real sense, especially when we gather for the liturgy, you and I are with the saints of the past, with the saints of the future, gathering in the throne room of heaven before Christ. And so, of course, I want to embody that reality because it's a true reality that's really taking place. And as an embodied being, I need to see that. I need to feel that. I need to smell that, taste that, whatever it might be. And I think that explains why God gave us sacraments. Why do we baptize? Why do we have the Eucharist? It's because we're embodied beings. And so sacred art is simply an extension and outworking of that that very same premise, that very same theology. Um, do you agree with yeah. that? And this, yes. Um, I was just about to say, like, even if you want to, you know, throw the Reformation heritage a line and say, look, word is important. Word is not nothing. Right. We don't, I think that's probably one of the problems with just having sacred, uh, just like images of Bible scenes are fine, but I find the veneration of just Bible scenes kind of odd. Right. Um, in a way, because usually they don't have, a lot of times, um, they don't have that indicator of the livingness of the saint. It's just sort of, right. oh, the saint lived at one point. Um, so, but I, I, uh, I know the Catholics usually have some sort of indicator of, you know, who is who. And you can do that pretty well with um, symbolic, you know, things people hold and stuff. But in terms of, you know, just the embodiment of the Christian life, I think, yeah, the, it's, that's just kind of what's lacking in our world we don't know how to live outside of our phones and we don't really know how to live just in our bodies and be, you know, comfortable with prostration, with uh, kneeling. Um, I know, you know, getting to, you know, coming from a very low church background, just getting myself to, desire to kneel was a process yeah because what i learned growing up and i love my parents and i know they did everything out of a good heart and everything out of what they believed was true um but just what you learn is that you know prayer and kneeling is of the heart it's in the heart right and but it's it's kind of you know what's kind of what's the point of having legs if they're not being used for anything and you know it's like you're fine with kneeling for a proposal but you're not fine mm. kneeling before the king of the universe mm. um yeah so yeah the, the uh embodiedness of the Christian religion is, 
I think just greatly needed because we just live in a very non uh, embodied time. Yeah. And as far as like images, yeah, I, I miss, I like, I miss the smell of incense. I wish incense was used a bit more. I don't know much about like the theology of incense. It's not something I've delved into yet. Um, but you just get the sense that, you know, in a white walled church, which I think there's this a nice part as well where it draws your attention to, um, in a way, to the center, which is Christ, and sort of, uh, this is the gem of heaven. Right. But then in an Orthodox church where you're surrounded by images of saints, well, or just an Anglican church, you're surrounded by images of saints, you're like, oh, the body of Christ around me too. Like, right. The, you can't separate them. Right. So. And in a real sense, you know, we, the, we kind the, of, the, we, I was just going to say in a real sense, like the saints around you that are depicted in these icons are only depicted there because it's a recognition that they're, they're, uh, they're being made present in a real sense is dependent upon the word of God, right? Like, mm -hmm. as Paul said, we've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Ephesians 2. Like, that's what an icon of a saint is meant to depict. The reason a saint is depicted is because it's a recognition that that saint is alive because that saint is found in Christ. And so even mm -hmm. the saints around you are not meant, you're not meant to dwell there. It's still meant to draw your eyes towards, like you said, that, that gem right there of Christ himself. Yeah. 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 So maybe, maybe a follow-up to the, the question about the seventh ecumenical council would just be, do, do you think that Catholicity is dependent upon the use of images in the life of the church. So for our Protestant brothers and sisters that would reject images, are they, are they abandoning something that is fundamental to the Catholic faith? Um, I guess I don't feel qualified to say yes or no, but my initial response would be that kind of, yes. Um, but not necessary, even if we think it's something that's proper. I don't think we can point to someone who clearly has the Holy Spirit and is living, you know, uh, is putting sin to death and is living for Christ and claims Christ's name. And they're doing that all without the use of images. You know, I don't think we least not us lay people have the right to say they're not a Christian. You might be able to say they're not a part of the fullness of the faith or a part right. of like the Catholic faith faith, but I don't think we can say something that they're not saved or they're not Christian at all. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that for sure. Um I think it's also just kind of hard um because when you have an ecumenical council, 
what you have to do is just have profound trust in their rulings. And you have to, especially Protestants, we have to compare that with scripture, which, you know, is also affirmed by councils. So it's kind of, it's, it is circular a bit. And I can see why skeptics are kind of, you know, back off from it a bit. Um, but you kind of just have to have a profound trust in sort of the life of the church and uh yeah because that's, that's just how we all live we all live by faith alone and faith working through love um and doing things to show that we have profound trust so with images that might just be you might feel like oh this is idolatry i'm not going to say you have to use images I'm not going to say you have to venerate them because your conscience is is important but at the same time i don't see why we can't have some sort of trust in the church yeah yeah and th- this this kind of goes back and ties into what I was talking about earlier, I'm, I'm drawing a lot from Hans Borsma here because I'm, I'm in the middle of reading his book and it's just fresh in my mind and it ties very, very much into what we're talking about. But like that whole idea that like the cosmos acts as a, as a sacramental participation in God, the, the time itself acts as a participation in God. You know, we, we would, we would go as far to say that like all things in some sense within reality act as a sacrament simply because we have the natural world and we have the supernatural world and we can't see those things as entirely distinct. We have to see that one kind of overlaps with another. And so because there's an overlap of all things, it really, in some sense, I think takes away that tension. And Hans Borsma argues that it takes away the tension between like scripture or tradition, which one, uh, do we do we prioritize scripture? Or do we prioritize tradition? Well, if mm-hmm. scripture is the manifestation of the word of God and the church is the body of Christ connected to the word of God, then the church's interpretation of scripture throughout history is sacramentally joined to the same source of, of scripture itself, which means that the tradition and the scripture are not opposed to one another, but are outworkings of the same sacramental participation in the word of God. Um, and that, that again, ties right into the theology that we've been talking about, about icons. But I also think it's, it's important to recognize for some Protestants that would say like, I want to go by scripture alone. I resonate with that. I understand why we want to elevate scripture against some of the abuses but again, if we if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, some of the break between like in, in the late medieval period when Rome was basically saying scripture and tradition are two different but equal authorities, Protestants were right to push mm-hmm. back on that. They were right to say, yeah, no, we're not going to give the same level of authority to the magisterium as we would to scripture. That's just not the case. And the reason that Rome was in error is because Rome had abandoned the fact that tradition and scripture are not two separate things, but are one thing connected to the word of God, different in terms of their role in the church, but both having their origin from the same exact place. Um, 
Mm. So it's sort of like your your video you just put up about I think it was branch theory. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you talked about how the church is a physical manifestation on earth and not just a invisible invisible reality even though i believe in a way in the invisible church which probably just means like all people who ever have been united to christ right right um i don't you don't i don't think you have to make a sort of distinction of oh it's the thought form of the church and it's i don't think anyone ever said that um but yeah you have the church throughout history you can point to a building and say there there is a church that is where christ is right um yeah and we just have i think we can have some sort of trust in that what has come about is the truth Mm. uh particularly because christ is you know redeeming the world he is trying to not trying he is saving the cosmos so that sort of means his continued embodied you know church like the fullness of truth is spreading right to reconcile the cosmos um obviously there's still division in the church and we disagree about a lot of things but I think we can have some sort of trust that the tradition that has prevailed is the truth and not not just it suppressed all the other right. uh, yeah. true you know real Christian things. So I think I think that's somewhat challenging to Reformation Christians who be honest like their their tradition is not triumphing right i mean presbyterian churches come like denominations come and go baptist denominations come and go um roman catholic church has been there for since the beginning the orthodox catholic church has been there since the beginning the Anglican catholic church has been there since the beginning it's yeah it's just like even through its tumultuous history it, they've the catholic faith has always just been there right and the part and the parts of those catholic faiths that have survived are the things that all three hold in common with one another you know those are the things that you see surviving and transcending time. And you see those things that kind of are the distinctives kind of rising and falling and leading to these kind of moments of tumultuous history. Whereas the things that were consistent in all, all of the different branches subsist and, and, and continue on. Um, like I said, kind of sacramentally participating mm-hmm. in the eternal word through the Holy spirit who, who keeps those realities ongoing. So like but I guess at the same time you have to be able to I guess in the more Protestant um sympathy you have yeah. to be able to say oh we need times of iconoclasm to not necessarily just reform or purify the church but kind of in that way of 
you know, something is wrong, maybe iconoclasm doesn't have to be the smashing of images. It could just be the gentle removal and replacing. It, we can do reform better right. than you know, John, John Knox at St. Giles Cathedral, which there's a statue of John Knox in St. Giles Cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the image smasher. Yeah, I I totally I totally agree with that, and I think that's why you know some people are like you can't you can't hold to the Seventh Ecumenical Council and the Thirty Nine Articles at the same time, but I I really truly do, and I don't feel like I'm contradicting the articles to say I affirmed the council. I recognize that the people who wrote the articles rejected the council, but the reality is the theology that they're trying to get at, the reform that they're trying to get at is the abuse of images the 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 mm-hmm. nominal and rationalistic theology that led and directed a lot of catholic theology at the time so if you were to ask me hey is it appropriate for a statue of mary to be above the eucharistic altar no we shouldn't put a statue of mary right above the eucharistic altar we can put mary off to the side but no she doesn't belong front and center as though she is to whom we are sacrificing or, or, or whatever it might be. And so, yes, I can agree with the 39 articles that the Romish doctrines concerning these things during the time of the Reformation needed reform. But that doesn't mean wholesale that we, that we need to reject images and completely dedicate ourselves to, for however long history goes on, we're iconoclasts now. No, there's a, there's a yeah. balance and there's a pendulum that's swinging. And I think you're bringing that out really well, which is to say, you know, that, yeah, there might be particular times in history where a kind of iconoclasm is the necessary means by which God moves his church back into a more mm-hmm. proper and right way to recognize and view images. Um, maybe we go too I far think- this way. And I think what we're seeing in yeah. Protestantism is we've moved too far into the iconoclasm and we're starting to see a swing back towards a more moderate view of images that is both proper and right and biblical. So, yeah, yeah. continue. The Roman Catholic communion in America, I think does this actually fairly decently. Um, I haven't been, I disagree with their like images of the father. Um, Not quite sure what the reasoning is there. I'm not even sure why they feel that's okay. Um, But their churches in America are almost always like Anglican and Lutheran looking because there's one altar up front and, you know, a statue of or a painting of Christ. Whereas I was in Prague a few years ago and went into a old, I guess, old Catholic church. And at every pillar, there's an altar with a painting of a scene above it. Mm. I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't see how that is good or correct. Right. Um, And I think that that is a good depiction of what the reformers were, were probably contextually looking at and viewing and seeing and going, yeah, no. And I would say, yeah, if I, if I was in a context like that with churches like that, with practices like that, I would stand side by side with the reformers without a doubt. And in that sense, yes, I'm very much committed to Protestantism. But if Protestantism means a commitment to historical documents 
as though they didn't have a particular context and as if they, they, they're, they're irreformable and can't be adjusted based on the new context we're living in. And I, I mean, we're living in a post-Vatican II co- context now. That's a very significant counsel in the direction that Catholicism went. It was a, in some sense, I would say Luther may have gone back to Catholicism after Vatican II, if he would have seen what they would have done. Um, obviously can't say that for sure, but I think largely a lot of Luther's issues would have been resolved um, through something like the Vatican II Council. And so if we're living in a context of Rome, that's very different than the reformers did in the 16th century. I think that needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be um, uh, part of the way in which we approach these issues. So, so maybe I'll, I'll just ask this question to you. Do you think that the Protestant embracing of sacred art um, and doesn't have to specify exactly how that's to look for different Protestants, it might be different, but just a general recognition that this is an okay thing. Do you think that that could have significant impact on the ecumenical journey moving forward? I think first off, it needs to be our best art. I think it can't just be, Oh, look, we have banners in our sanctuary. Now it can't just be we're. I think as long as we're trying, that's a good start. Um, I don't know if it'll heal, um, a whole lot because I think we still have a little bit, little bit of way to go to get beyond subconscious prejudices yeah. of you know Catholics have against Protestants and Protestants have against against Catholics and um and honestly it's just sort of I think even if a lot of Protestants did start to um, encourage and join in and uh, start using sacred art. I still feel like a lot of maybe the more polemical Roman Catholics would find some way to feel better than us. Um, I think Catholic influencers do this. Yeah. They, you know, there's Protestant traditions that affirm the real presence, but they were still better because we have the priesthood or we have the doctrine or something. Um, and then also Protestants need to kind of real, I guess, realize that Catholics and Orthodox are brothers and sisters. They're not just um, anathema. Uh, I think right. that that's something that sort of actually shook me a little bit when I went to um, Bible college where I, you know, I go in and I find out that there's debate still among Protestants about justification. And, you know, I grew up kind of thinking, oh, the Protestants just completely got it right. And there's no, like every, every Protestant agrees about it now. And so I think if you're allowed to have the difference of justification in right. the Protestant world that is considered the building block of the church to many i think you have to extend that grace to catholics and orthodox who are also you know 
questionable about or questioning justification or have a different approach to it. Um, right. So long as they don't actually think they are meriting their salvation because right. most Orthodox and Catholics don't. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I think, yeah. One of the ways that we can heal the divisions is simply by listening to each other more intently, conversing more honestly, and not making stupid videos online, straw manning one another, um, and, and making each other angry. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, this, this new wave of ecumenical dialogue is, I think, far better than the debates that happened. <clears throat> um, I was not old enough to be into like the James White debates, but I can't imagine the debate style convinces many people. Yeah, um, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, <clears throat> the dialogue style of, oh, wait, you actually don't believe what I think you believe. You actually believe something very similar to what I believe is much better for um, trying to build bridges and build understanding. And we still have to, though, stand on where we uh, fall. So, <clears throat> or we have to maintain our convictions. I don't think we can just say, like, oh, nothing matters. Right. Doctrine is unimportant. So we're just going to all join together. Right. Um, so in that sense, I don't see sacred art being the catalyst for, you know, having Catholic and Protestant reconciliation and like coming back together in worship. <clears throat> yeah. But I think it's, that should be our desire. Um, I think a lot of Protestants now have the mentality of we're never going back and they forget that their name is Protestant and that they came off of, you know, a branch of the true church and they for a while wanted back in, but couldn't for various reasons. Right. And now most of us have just given up and right. say it's, it's too far gone. We shouldn't be engaged in dialogue with them at all. I think that's a failure of Protestantism and it's a failure of um, trying to follow Christ's command to be united. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with, with everything you just said there. Um, yeah. As, as we try to just kind of bring this, bring this to a close, is there, is there any final things that you would, you would want to address on, on this subject? I mean, this is a deep subject. We could probably go for, quite a bit longer, but, um, what, what are some final thoughts that you have on the, the relationship of sacred art to, to the Protestant tradition? Um, well, I think for one, I think Protestants, if anything should focus as much as they can on just making good, beautiful art. Um, and also learning the traditions of sacred art making, even if you don't want to use it 
Um, mm-hmm. There's, especially for the art, for the artist, there's benefit in learning everything and in learning old things. Um, and I think if you take icon painting, for example, I think you're going to find that when you sit down and start painting an icon and it's quiet, you can pray and you can not, not even necessarily praying with the icon. Um, you can just pray, you can sort of meditate and there's a freedom in that what you are creating has been set already and you're just trying to learn. I've, I've found that um, has happened more than once of the icon painting calms my mind and I can not feel like I'm failing at making you know the next masterpiece of fine art um, because I haven't put my emotions on the canvas or I haven't thought of the composition, the colors enough. I can just paint. I can just pray and it's sort of meditative and there's a beauty to that as well. And I think from that, you might start learning to love iconography and your mind might also change about it eventually. Um, And maybe that's how many Protestants need to be introduced to sacred art in a less doctrinal, um, dogmatic way of just, hey, experience it for a bit. Realize that it's it's a blessing sometimes. And yeah, I think that would be a, a good place to start at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would just add to that and just say, um, just kind of going back to the idea that we're, we're embodied creatures and we can't help, but we can't help but physically feel the need to embody that which we feel inside. So back when I was in evangelical, um, in the evangelical free church, there's kind of elements of Pentecostal Christianity in there somewhat. And, you know, when the worship was going, you would see people all over with their hands up in the air worshiping. Now, why, why would somebody do something like that? Why would they lift their hands in the air? Well, it's no different than kneeling. It's no different than Mm -hmm. any of that. They are feeling something deep inside of them resonating in them and they're seeking to embody that reality. Um, and so I would say if you're an evangelical, that's comfortable putting your hands up in worship, you've already conceded the fact that the invisible that we can't see is seeking to be manifested in the visible. And so because of that, I would just simply say, look to, to sacred art as, as, as simply an, an outplaying of that very same thing. It's not meant to be an idol in your house. That's not what sacred art is. Sacred art is simply a depiction of something so that an invisible reality or, or, or true reality that really exists, but that's invisible to us 
can be beheld by us and embodied before us so that we might participate in it on a deeper level. Um, so yeah, and I, I, th- I think Protestants would, would, would do well to recognize this and to participate in it because I think it really is, I agree with the Orthodox entirely that it's an outworking of incarnational Christology. Um, so yeah, uh, I think we'll, we'll also, wrap it up. Please, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was, well, I was just going to say, like, and realize that in in the new creation in the eschaton, I guess, um, if art is still being created, it will have that sense of um, sacramentalness because they can't help to have it because right. it will. It will be one of those things that um, has its life and being in God. Yeah. Um, so it, we don't live in that state now. So if you want to say, oh, we can't say that of art yet, I think you're going to have to say that of art at some point. That sure. at some point, art itself will be and deified yeah yeah that's exactly right and i would just say you know the the difference between just fine art in general and sacred art is that sacred art is intentionally trying to do that it's trying to show what art deified looks like here and now in the already not yet in the same way that we're already new Mm -hmm. creations in christ but we also recognize there's a not yet reality that's that's all that iconography and sacred art is trying to accomplish um, yeah. Yep. Well, Benjamin, thank you for coming on. I think this was a, a good discussion. It at least kind of scratches the surface and begins to hopefully put some um, some food for thought in the mind of those listening that might might come from a perspective that was previously opposed to sacred art. Um, I appreciate your time, and I would just encourage everybody to remember to click the link below and go check out uh, Benjamin's work on his on his website as well as his his blog. Um, I've read some of your blog. It's very good, very interesting stuff. Um, and like I said before, your art is phenomenal. It's very, very good. Um, so I would recommend everybody do that. And brother, thank you for coming on. Yeah. I really hope I can continue with, uh, for one, just getting to know my own stuff more better, becoming more eloquent, um, writing better. A lot of times I, I know I have typos and um, misspellings and <clears throat> so because a lot of it is written kind of at night or here and there and I don't always have time to edit it to a professional level um, and I do have you know a full-time job but this is something that's really uh, important to me and yeah. I, I especially enjoy the as much as I do love sacred art and I make it and um i want to see its use again in just in just for decoration if that's what has to start with at least i do i am also i do feel a, a call to help fine art as a whole sort of the art for art's sake type art to find its uh sacramental reality find its 
way in deification in um in the ways i can and sort of just not not give up on just the be- the beautiful art the yeah. art that you just use to decorate your kitchen um yeah that's all good stuff too that's all necessary stuff yes um yeah so i i definitely feel a call to do that and sacred art really helps that and it helps ground me a bit too so yeah well that's awesome man yeah i i appreciate you you coming on and sharing sharing your gift with us yeah thank you for having me on